0: Lost your voice at the end there. Well, <laughs> Chag Happy Passover, Happy Resurrection, uh, First Fruits, Shabbat Shalom. This is a, a joyous time today, many things to celebrate, and so they're all coming together. And uh, I hope to be able to uh, just impart something about this this morning to you all. So uh, let me just pray once again for my own sake. So Father, I just thank you that you split the sea so that we could walk right through it, that this resurrection love um, has come to the earth, and that we are able to, by your grace and mercy and power to enter into it and live this new life, empowered by your Holy Spirit, by your Ruach, unto godliness and good deeds and changing the world, let alone changing ourselves. And so, Father, I just uh, pray that you would continue to be with us as you have so mightily this morning. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. So, it's good to see everybody. A few guests and friends are here, and so I'm glad you could be here this Shabbat. We uh, have a very full service. Some say long, but I I think it's full. And uh, the liturgy and the scripture reading, I mean, the Lord has just been with us. uh, So, may He continue to do that. Last week I was speaking on what I called the blood redemption story and I was going back to the garden and looking at the first shedding of blood and showing how God himself actually sheds the blood of this animal to bring covering and atonement for the very first sin for Adam and Eve. And I want to continue this story of this unified blood redemption story because it builds the context for Yeshua's blood. Because Yeshua doesn't just die 2,000 years ago out of nowhere. There's much context and much anticipation and much history that happens before that. And so really I'm wanting to take us on a biblical history lesson this morning and show you and follow this thread of blood throughout the Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. And what we're going to see is his faithfulness is stamped into time and history through blood covenant relationships. And that's actually how he ends up revealing himself into the earth. This is his way that he chose to do it, is to reveal his faithfulness through these blood covenant relationships relationships. And it progresses, and there's this accumulation of blood that takes place when Yeshua pours out his, his blood on the cross of Calvary. So let's take a look at this, because I think it's important also that we see that this redemption that we're so interested in, that's so important and foundational to our life in Yeshua, that it doesn't just begin at the cross. And in some sense, the Apostle Paul, Rav Shaul, he's like this amazing teacher who really gives us sometimes cliff notes. If you're you're a teacher, if you remember your high school days, the cliff notes, right? And the cliff notes is what you read when you neglected to do the assignment, right? And so really... Paul is giving, now it's, he's this brilliant cliff note writer, don't get me wrong, he's inspired by God, and it's amazing, but he's really summarizing this context that's called biblical history, and thousands of years that came before it, okay? So what I want to do is just give us a quick Bible uh, blood history lesson for this important day. So I'll continue from Adam and pick up with Noah. And I want to look at the blood implications from the covenant with Noah. So if you turn to Genesis 9, we'll pick up this story. And as you're doing that, I want you to remember that God actually floods the earth because of violence. And this is recorded in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11 and 13, that he floods the earth. I mean, it's a big deal that God decided to wipe out the entire earth, right? So a good question is, this: why would God do that? And the text shows us it's because of violence and corruption. But violence means shedding of blood. So God cares about the shedding of innocent blood. Let's pick up in Genesis 9, verse 3. And this is when Noah gets off of the ark, and he makes a covenant with God, and this is that covenantal context. It says that every crawling thing that is alive will be food for you, as are the green plants, and I have now given you everything. Only flesh with its life, that is its blood, you must not eat. Surely your lifeblood will I avenge. From every animal and from every person will I avenge it. From every person's brother will I avenge that person's life. The one who sheds human blood, by a human will his blood be shed, for in God's image he made humanity. Can you see how much God is emphasizing the importance of blood? And how unhappy he was to have to cleanse the earth... Through this flood, and he's making it very clear in this covenantal context with Noah the importance of blood and blood representing life. And so we begin to see also this allusion to a blood redeemer. Did you hear this this avenger language in this translation, which I really like? You begin to see this hint, this suggestion of a blood redeemer who will come and bring vengeance and justice to all the blood, innocent blood that has been shed. And secondly here, what we see in Noah is that now you can eat meat. Well, this is really interesting. If we rewind a little bit and we go back to the garden in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, it says this. Then God said, I have just given you every green plant. This is the garden, right? Every green plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the whole land and every tree which has the fruit of a tree yielding seed. And they are to be food for you. So if you didn't know what we see here is that from Adam all the way to Noah humanity according to God's will here is to be or are to be vegetarians or even possibly frugivores meaning they only ate fruit okay now there's arguments it doesn't really matter my point is this is that they didn't eat meat Now, this is significant. Why? Because you have roughly 950 years, according to the biblical account, between Adam and Noah. That's a long time in human history if we're sitting at roughly 5,000 and something years. Okay? So for almost 1,000 years, we don't eat meat. And that means that every time an animal was killed for 950 years, the only reason it was killed was for this relational unity between God and man. Do you see what I'm saying? This was very reverent. This blood was very important to God. And so then when other blood was shed, he made a big deal out of it. But what happens here in Noah is he actually says, now I will allow you to eat meat. We have a progression in the story of history. Do you see it? We actually were created originally with food restrictions. He hadn't thought about it. But now the requirement is, is that blood must be handled appropriately. He's talking about letting the blood out, not eating Animals meet with the blood in it, right? And what we begin to see is this clear picture of a covenantal sacrificial meal, right? There's no such thing as a sacrificial meal before Noah, and now we see that there's this possibility of a sacrificial meal. And in fact, the suggestion in the text is that he eats clean animals because. There's seven pairs of clean animals here, even before Moses' revelation on Mount Sinai. But I won't get into that. My last point here is I want to just show you that the Noahic covenant has this well-known sign. What's the sign? A rainbow that we still see today. Now, the rainbow is only used in a few places in Scripture. And I want to point out two of the, well, this is one, but then there's three other ones. I'm going to point out two of them. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1. Because why did he decide to have the rainbow be the sign? Have you asked that question? If somebody could get me a drink of water, I would appreciate it. I forgot my... So Ezekiel chapter 1, what we see is the context is that heavens are opened to Ezekiel. This is this great vision of the heavens by Ezekiel. And we pick up in verse 26, and just before this we saw that he's seeing the four living creatures. I mean, this is this very difficult to understand revelation from Ezekiel, right? So we pick up, and we're going to see something really cool. Verse 26, it says, Above the expanse over their heads of the four living creatures was something like a throne, resembling a sapphire stone. And above the shape of the throne was a figure of human appearance. Come on. From what appeared as his waist upward, I saw a glowing metal, looking like a fire encased in a frame. And from what was like his waist down, I saw the appearance of fire radiating around him. Like the appearance of the rainbow in the cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the radiance. It was the appearance of the likeness. Thank you. It was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. The rainbow is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Heaven began to break into the earth in the covenant with Noah. The very throne of heaven is beginning to break into the earth that many years ago. Turn to Revelation 4. Verse 3, or verse 2. Again, we have a heavenly vision. The heavens are open now to John. This is John's apocalypse. It says in verse 2, Immediately I was in the Ruach, the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And one seated on the throne, and the one who was seated was like jasper, and carmelian in appearance, and a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes, with golden crowns on their heads. And out of the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and clashes of thunder. And seven torches of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And we actually read this section in our liturgy, liturgy today. Which is this powerful, again, description of the throne of heaven... And we end up, if we keep reading, to see we have the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And it says, worthy is the Lamb. So we're beginning to see this heavenly throne. That's what the rainbow represents all the way back to Noah. All right, let's keep moving forward. To Abraham, the next covenant in Scripture. As we're building... So the Abrahamic covenant is significant because it's, we see for the first time, it's not just with one man, but it's actually with Abraham. And God repeats the covenant with Isaac, and he repeats the covenant with Jacob. So the Abrahamic covenant is technically the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob covenant. It's a trigenerational covenant. It's a familial covenant. It's a tribal covenant with the people of Israel, because Jacob, of course, is Israel. So that's my first point. My second point of this miraculous uh, scene here that has to do with blood is that we look and we see this principle of Abraham and, and Sarah. They end up conceiving and giving birth to Isaac, right? And But this is... Not normal for a 90-year-old woman to give birth, right? And for a 100-year-old man to have a son. And so the principle or the concept I want you to see here is that they, their bodies actually overcame death. That their bodies were actually resurrected, in a sense, to be able to have this son. Are you following me? And then we see this same Overcoming death, this resurrection principle in the Akidah in Genesis chapter 22, right? Where Abraham actually offers Isaac up on the altar. And then Hebrews 11 says that he reasoned that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And in a sense, he did receive him back from there. This is Hebrews. So there's this resurrection principle that's happening on Mount Moriah, which is Mount Zion, which is the place of the Holy of Holies. And we see this overcoming resurrection principle. And we see, if we look in Genesis 22, if you want to turn there, one other really significant thing that I want you to see. In 22, verse 2. I guess I'll point out before that, while you're turning there, that the sign of the the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. So we have this blood, uh, human blood connection now, with covenant, right? Before we had... Animal blood, and we continue to have animal blood, but now there's this strange connection with human, like male blood, right? Male human blood, and it's very intimate, right? Circumcision it doesn't get any more intimate than circumcision. So there's this intimacy that enters into the picture as well. And if we look in 22, did I say Exodus? I meant Genesis. Did I say the right thing? Okay. Verse 2, it says, Then he said, God is testing Abraham. He says, Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains about which I tell you. There's something very significant here, if you haven't heard this, in that this is the first use of the word love in all of Scripture. The word in Hebrew is ahava. And the first use of a word in Scripture is always significant, according to almost all commentators, Christian and Jewish alike. And the significance here is that the word love is used in the context of a father's love for his only son. Son. The first use of love is the context of a father's love for his only son. And not only that, but the context, there is a requirement for a human blood sacrifice. Whoa. No wonder why, when you read the rabbinic commentaries about Genesis 22, They really don't know what to do with this scene. Although they know it's extremely important. In fact, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they call upon the binding of Isaac as the efficacy for the significance and the the allowance of God to atone for the sins of humanity. Because they know something's there, but they they can't quite understand this building reality of this human sacrifice that would be Yeshua himself. So what do we have? We have blood covenants are now becoming familial. We have uh, this resurrection principle of overcoming death that's now introduced. And then we have blood becoming personal and human through circumcision. Isaac ends up foreshadowing the human blood offering of Yeshua... And this picture is being painted of the ultimate blood atonement coming through a man. Can you feel the progression of blood in Scripture? We're not done. Let's move on to Moses and the Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant, famously, we have this sacrificial system, right? All the different blood that's shed. For 4,000 years we have all this blood that is shed through animal sacrifices leading up to the blood of Yeshua. Can you hear the symbolism that God is trying to scream about the significance of his blood when you add up all of the blood of the sacrificial system? In fact, they had a a chamber. They had to like channel the blood on the Temple Mount into the Kidron Valley because there's so much blood that's being spilled. To kill a, a bull, that's a lot of blood. And so what do we see in the Mosaic covenant is now we see that blood equals life equals atonement. So we've seen suggestions and hints of that. We know that's what's taking place in Abraham. We know that's what's taking place with Noah. We understand that's what's taking place in Adam. But it's not until Moses that it really becomes clear, right? That God just, he, he really just fleshes it out. He, he makes it really obvious to us. And he says this in Leviticus 17, and I'll just read it to you. Verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. For it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. The life is in the blood. So, it's finally, it's not till Leviticus 17, actually, that God really just lays it out. That the blood, atonement, that life is in the blood, and this is what brings atonement. But remember, we have to understand redemption, not just going back to Yeshua, and all, which is the Christian um, foundation, understandably. But we also can't just go back to Abraham, which is the Jewish really, foundation of redemption. But what I want us to see is that we have to understand redemption going all the way back to the garden itself. And by doing that, now you're able to really fill in the full context of what takes place on the cross. Because it wasn't just, like I said before, something that happened out of nowhere. Okay, Exodus 24. Here's my other point about Moses. Are you having fun yet? You're quiet this morning. Feel free to yell at me. Exodus twenty-four is the mosaic covenantal ceremony. You actually look awake, just quiet. <laughs> Woohoo. Yeah. It is the blood. So Moses wrote down, Exodus 24, 4. So Moses wrote down all the words of Adonai. And then he rose up early in the morning. Again, this is the Mosaic covenantal ceremony that's taking place here. He rose up early and built an altar below the mountain, Mount Sinai, along with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He then sent out young men of the children of Israel, who sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings of oxen to Adonai. Then Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half he poured out against the altar. He took the scroll of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And again they said, All that Adonai has spoken we will do and obey. Then Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which Adonai has cut with you in agreement with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadav and Avihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet was something like a pavement of sapphire. Sounds like the rainbow context before as clear as the very heavens. Yet he did not raise his hand against the nobles of the children of Israel. So they beheld God, or they looked upon God, and they ate and drank. This is quite extraordinary. They're sharing this covenantal meal with the living God. They're seeing him, right? It says they're eating and drinking with Him. And so now they're sharing this covenantal meal that's now possible, right? Started off as frugivores, then you could eat, now we have this participation in the sacrificial meal, and God is actually here Himself. And so we see this much clearer revelation of a divine human covenant through a sacrificial meal. And it's actually not just with the elders. It says he throws the blood on the people, and then it says that they were sacrificing burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and fellowship offerings are the Shalomim offerings, the Shalom offerings, and those are the ones that everybody eats. So this is a party. I mean, this is a, a, a celebration of what God has done, that remember they've Just come out of Egypt. This is, he split the sea so you could walk right through it. And they're celebrating what God has done and he's making this covenant with them. Okay, finishing up Moses, turn to Exodus 31. Heading towards the conclusion. Exodus 31 is significant because this is the question of what is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus 31, verse 12, it says, Then Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak now to the children of Israel, saying, Surely you must keep my Shabbatot, my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. So you may know that I am Adonai who sanctifies you. Therefore you are to keep the Shabbat, because it is holy for you. And I'll skip down to verse 16. So the children of Israel is to keep the Shabbat, to observe the Shabbat throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, Olam in Hebrew. For in six days, Adam and I made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and he rested. And when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave the two tablets of the testimony to Moses, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. It can't get any clearer in the text if you weren't aware that the sign of the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath. It's the Shabbat, right? All right, hold that. We'll get back to it in one minute here. So what do we have? We have the sacrificial system is this greater and more detailed clarity that blood equals life equals atonement. And then we have this clearer participation in revelation about this sacrificial meal that's now available with God and man, right? And so that brings us to the new covenant, to Yeshua himself, right? And so it's, you can already see it's no surprise that this progression and this accumulation of blood covenants, it leads all of human history to this ultimate unveiling, if you will, of this relationship in Yeshua himself, right? This is the context. Yeshua doesn't come to do away with something. He comes to reveal everything, I'll say it again, he doesn't come to do away with anything, he comes to reveal everything. He's bringing it all to light, he's connecting all the dots. And you can see this thread of blood covenants that culminates with him and the new covenant, right? So all these previous covenants paint the context for the significance of his blood. And Him overcoming death, this resurrection principle. And so I want you to see this in John chapter 6. So Yeshua comes to the earth. And this is what He says in John 6, 54 at Capernaum. Kafir Nahum for some of us who were just there. He says, He who eats my flesh... And drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who eats of me will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread your fathers ate and then died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's summarizing biblical covenantal history, right? I just showed it to you. He's, he's summarizing it and how he's saying, Take and eat my flesh. And drink my blood. He's saying this is the context. All the scripture, all the covenants that came before. He says, if you knew Abraham and the prophets, you would know me, he says. It's all written right there. It says to the man on the, the road to Emmaus, he's telling them and uh, showing himself throughout the scriptures, it says, right? As they built the context for what would happen on the cross, because when it happens, They're they're not fully understanding all this. And as I argued last week, the reason is is because it's too big. It's, It's so great. It took thousands of years for God to even paint the context for us to understand what would happen on the cross. And so then, of course, this becomes this necessary context for the Lord's table. He's he's putting it all together and he's demonstrating and showing the significance of the symbolism of the bread and the wine. And he's saying that this is, in fact, him. And so my final conclusion here is the summary of the signs of the biblical covenant. So I went through these signs. I don't usually do slides... So I apologize for my, it's not super clear, but hopefully you can understand it. But here's what I want you to see. If you think about what is a sign, because God put all these signs in the coming. Why do we have signs? Well, I just wrote down a few things, just generically. A sign tells you where to go, right? A, A sign is a reminder. It's very helpful. It brings order out of chaos. If we have no signs and you're driving, you would just be in chaos, wouldn't you? So signs actually bring order where there could be chaos. And then finally, signs help the lost find the way, which is really good. Signs help the lost find the way, right? So now let's take a look at what these signs of the blood covenants show us. And this is what I call the progressive revelation of Yeshua. We see in Adam that clothing was the sign that I talked about last week. And that there's this suggested atonement and suggested humanity as clothing is worn only on Humans, right? So this is the beginning. Then we get to Noah, and we saw that this rainbow, as we saw in Scripture, actually is talking about this throne of heaven, right? And that we saw that there's actually one sitting on the throne, and then we, if I read the rest of Revelation, there's the Lamb, who's also with the one who sits on the throne, But we have this human element of the throne we saw in Ezekiel. And so we saw a suggestion of human with clothing. So now we're progressing and we get to Abraham. And now we know there's a human element to this sign that's pointing here because of circumcision, right? And it's a male. And we know that Yeshua is circumcised on the eighth day in Luke chapter 2. So now we have this human who's male, who's circumcised on the eighth day, wearing clothing, who is symbolizing the throne of heaven itself. And then we get to Moses, and we see that the Shabbat, it says in the Gospels that Yeshua is the Lord of the Shabbat, the Lord of the Sabbath. And remember, the Sabbath represents... Not just the seventh day of creation, but it also represents the exodus from Egypt. This is the great salvation and deliverance of Israel and the Jewish people. And the Sabbath also represents the age to come, the world to come, the thousand year reign. So this Lord of the Sabbath, all these signs are pointing to Yeshua Himself, And they're painting this picture of the one most important blood covenant relationship. This is amazing. God's painting this picture through the covenants of Scripture. Which means this blood covenant friendship is available in Yeshua. And this is where Yeshua says in John 15 at the Last Supper when he's implementing this Most important meal, the Lord's table. He says, no one has greater love than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The most precious gift is that he pours out his blood for us. This is his great love. And the sign of this love, which is in some sense even more significant, is that He rises from the dead, right? He overcomes death. And then He gives us the sign of the new covenant, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the Ruach HaKodesh, which actually enables us to be able to love one another. How are we going to love like Yeshua loved? He said this is this new commandment that you love others right that you love one another the way that this about this, the same way the father and him have this love relationship and the same way that he demonstrated it on the cross and he says don't worry because the way you're going to do it is by the power of the ruach hakodesh and that's how you're going to love one another that's how you're going to be able to spread the good news of the kingdom So let's conclude with Revelation 5 since we started there at the beginning. I'm just going to read the whole thing because I don't know what time it is. And I saw in the right hand of the one seated upon the throne a scroll written on both the front and the back sealed with seven seals and I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with the loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or even under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders tells me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures. And in the midst of the elders, I saw a lamb standing as having been slain. Because the other sign of the new covenant is that Yeshua still Carries the marks of his crucifixion even in his resurrected body. Because this is at the very end. And they look upon him, and it says, the lamb standing as if having been slain. This is the resurrected Yeshua. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of the Father, the one seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, the Kedoshim. And they are singing a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you redeemed for God those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them for our God a kingdom and priests, and they shall reign upon the earth. This is a story from the very beginning to the very end. Can you see it? From the garden all the way to Revelation, It's this same story about the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And Him revealing the very nature and character of who He is through time and history. Because ultimately, it isn't about theology, it's about relationship. And so He did all of this so we would get it more. Do you understand that? He could have come right when Adam sins, but he doesn't do it. He wants us to be able to understand so that we'll choose him, so we'll see this amazing story that is human history and how he's revealed himself throughout time so that we would understand and know and desire and want this relationship with him. That's called grace. That's called mercy. That's called kindness, goodness. He is this amazing God. So we celebrate today His blood and His resurrection. Poured out for our redemption. He rose from the dead so that we could have eternal life. It's not just that He forgives our sins, although that has to take place. But it's also redemption is that we have this new life. And that we can live from this new life. That the kingdom is available in this new life, and that we can, through this relationship, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can change the world and God willing, change ourselves. So, toda Yeshua, we thank you, Yeshua, for this great Holy Week, this great festive time, and that we get to enter into the history, and the power of your blood. And we get to live from a place of resurrection so that we can willingly offer ourselves as living sacrifices, knowing that you will bring life from the dead. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to overcome the sin and bondage and death in our own lives that you would fully take us out of Egypt on this Shabbat, that you would release us from the chains that are binding us and connecting us to this world, Lord. I pray right now that anybody in this room who has one foot still in this world, that you would break that chain that binds them, that you would send your messengers, your helpers, your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, to break the chains that bind, to set us free, Lord, from sin and death. Forgive us our sins, Lord, as we forgive others. Father, I pray that we would even now just release forgiveness and our families and friends, as the holidays are often difficult times because of brokenness and bitterness. So Lord, we forgive. We just choose to forgive our family members. In the name of Yeshua, set us free. Bring redemption and wholeness to these relationships. Shem Yeshua. Amen.